Hey, it's good to see all of you. The place looks full and full of life, and I'm so thankful for Raymond and for his giftedness. Aren't you thankful for Raymond? And in leading us, in choosing these songs uh, to draw us in worship together and bring us before God. I'm thankful for his courage to wear a bright pink shirt. How about that? I like that. God is good, and we are grateful, and we live uh, and share life together in the fellowship of the Spirit and in the way of Jesus. These last few weeks, um, I have invited us to think with the Scriptures, to hear the Word of God as it draws us up into a melody. If you've been following along carefully, and I'm not assuming that all of you have, uh, these are tied together thematically. Uh, in your um, order of service, you may have noticed the sermon titles, Sing Your Song, Church. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, we sat with the song uh, that Paul offers the church in Philippi in a moment where the church is feeling itself under intense pressure from without the church in Philippi that's before him as he sits and holds them in his heart and picks up his pen to write toward them. He knows what they are experiencing as um, this new, fledgling, young community of Jesus followers faces intense pressure from without, akin to that which Paul himself had experienced when he was in Philippi, and then found himself in prison, in chains, and through the dark watches of the night, sang his way back to Jesus. And he knows that that intense pressure from without is beginning to have an effect on their life together and the unity of the body of Christ in Philippi. You know how this can happen when it just reaches kind of a breaking point and there's a fracture in the life of the community. And so as he holds them in his heart and he begins to to write to them this letter that we call the letter to the Philippians, He says, I want to call you back to the way of Jesus. I want you to have the mind of Christ, the mind of Jesus. And then it comes to him in that moment. Remember your song. And so he begins to write to them their own song. Sometimes it's been referred to as the Christ hymn. Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to hold on to, but he emptied himself. And he's calling them to sing their song again and to remember that their song makes them who they are as people in the image of Jesus. Two weeks ago, we remembered that song. And then last week, we stepped into the throne uh, vision of John of Patmos in Revelation 4 and 5. And we remembered these familiar words that we've sung so many times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, the living creatures before the throne who never stop proclaiming the holiness of God even though John knows in the vision and in his experience of life that though God is holy and sovereign that there is still much brokenness and suffering and evil in the world. How do you hold together A song that sings the holiness of God and a confession that says, 
Our world is still undone, and we are still undone, O God. We sing a holy confession. And so I want us this morning to come to yet another song given to us down through the ages in the story of the people of God and in the testimony of Scripture, a different kind of song. And I'll just take a moment to share with you these words from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our ancestors trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. And I'm inserting my commentary right here. This is not a verse. But if that was true and you remembered them, then why aren't you remembering me now? That's what he says. But I am a worm and not human, scorned by others and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They shake their heads. Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver. Let him rescue the one in whom he delights. This too is a song of the people of God. Would you join me in prayer that God would bless the reading of his word and our meditation on it together. Let us pray. God, thank you for gathering us here in your name, for drawing us up out of the everyday routine moments of our life to, to set aside and declare our love for you and our love for each other and now will you open our hearts and bless the reading of your word that it might find its way deep into our hearts and our minds. It might shape our words and our actions. We pray that by your word and your spirit, you would be present and bless us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm not formally trained as a musician. That may not be a shocker to you. I'm not formally trained, but something about um, music captured my imagination at a very young age. One of the first few times we visited here and I was preaching, my daughter and granddaughter, uh, no, my, my daughter and son-in-law and granddaughter, she's about 18 months, a little over, maybe not quite 18 months, little. But you know, when you put on music and she's sitting there, she starts to wiggle. Some people just wiggle with the music. I wasn't a wiggler, but I was fascinated with music, and I taught myself at a very young age. I wanted to know, and so I sat down at a piano. There wasn't one in our house, but I found one, and I began to try and figure it out. Taught myself to play the guitar. I'm not very good at either, but I can kind of play a little bit. What I discovered is that, you know, you can combine on a piano, you can combine notes together in a certain way and make chords of various kinds. 
I didn't know that then, but I'll know that now, uh, and I'll try and speak. So I'm telling you, I'm not trained, so I'm going to speak in this in an untrained way. Some of you may be more formally trained. Where's Leonard? Leonard here? I don't know Leonard's last name, but I met Leonard. Where's Leonard? No? I think he teaches music, if I remember correctly. So he could correct me later. If he were here, he could correct me. But I know that if you, if you put chords together in thirds, in a triad, right, it makes a, a beautiful chord. You have sort of the base of the triad, and then the next third, and the next third. And if you've been in Church of Christ long enough, you know that a lot of the music we sing is built on these triads, and so we learn to sing in harmony on these beautiful triads. It's a major chord, a triad. Um, I'm not going to take the time for us to experiment in seeing if we could do this, but it, maybe another time. But you know what else I learned? I learned that you could configure chords in different ways and make them sound differently. Not only uh, where they were on the scale, but the combination of notes in a chord could sound differently. Some of you are nodding your heads like you recognize what I'm talking about. If you don't, just come along for the ride. In particular, I learned that in the triad, the middle third of the triad, if you alter that note just slightly, you get not only a major chord, which sounds bright and harmonious, but you get what? A minor chord. And it sounds different. It sounds dark. It sounds ominous. When the triad breaks just a half note, when the harmony shifts just a half note, the mood turns. It's dark and it's ominous. We have a name for this among the people of God in our worship. It's called lament. I'm equating a minor chord with lament. How many of you know lament? It's all throughout Scripture. It's in the Psalms and beyond. When the perfect triad breaks, life sung in a major chord where everything seems bright and hopeful and blessed and good and full suddenly shifts and turns minor, dark, ominous. It's lament. And in lament, in that moment where the chord shifts and things seem darker, in the language of lament, it is the shocking audacity to call out God in the midst of the experience of life. That's what lament is. If you're looking for at least my definition, probably not the best one, it's the shocking audacity to call out God in the midst of the experience of the shift from what seems good and whole and complete to what seems just off and broken and undone. It has a structure, lament does. It comes in a form for the people of God. It is direct address. Okay, God, that's my modern translation. But in the words we just read together from Psalm 22, it's what? My God. My God. So it starts, always starts with direct address toward God. It's bold and it's audacious. And then it's followed by complaint. By complaint. 
or accusation. Okay, God, if you are faithful through the ages, then what's up with this? You, see the, you hear the complaint. That's lament, direct ad address. And often mm, in our scriptures, in how we read them flat off the page, and in how we interpret them, we turn what is hard and bold and audacious and even inconceivable in the way we might talk to God, and we soften it. It gets real soft, but it's not. Lament is not. It's laced with, there's an anger beneath it. There is a rawness, something that boils up, and it is the audacity to express it. If we could translate it today, the rawness, the realness, the crassness of talking to God like this, well, it would make us uncomfortable. And I'm not opposed to making you uncomfortable, but I'm not going to go there. The rawness, the crassness, the audacity to address God in this way, we would think, I'm not sure that belongs in church. But I want you to know that it's throughout the Bible, in the Psalms, and you'll see a slide on the screen that represents the 150 Psalms, all nicely, evenly laid out in a chart there. What you're going to see next are the Psalms of Lament. Next slide. That's a pretty good uh, amount uh, of Psalms, but here's what you need to know. Those purple blocks represent some songs of lament, Psalms of Lament. Those are the individual Psalms of Lament. So it's from the perspective of an individual who's calling out to God in the midst of the brokenness. Next slide, we'll show you, fill in a little bit, the corporate Psalms of Lament. So these are the Psalms for the whole people to say, it's not just my experience that I'm calling out to God about, that I'm accusing God about, but it's, it's our collective experience. What you should notice there is that the purple in either shade is a significant amount of what amounts to the worship book of the people of God, the Psalter, the Psalms. And then what I'd want you to know, and there's not a slide for this, so uh, that's our look at the Psalms. But then what I would want you to know is that it's not only in the Psalms. It's smattered throughout the whole witness of Scripture. You'll recognize this one. There's a little book in the Old Testament called Lamentations. Guess what? <laughs> it's lament. It's most commonly ascribed to the prophet Jeremiah, it is the collective lament, the whole book is, the collective lament at the destruction of Jerusalem and the uh, destruction of the temple in which the prophet is offering them words to cry out to God, direct address, complaint. Okay, God, if you're God, if you're our God, and you've chosen us, and you're with us, what gives? Where are you? It's lament. Um, it's found throughout Scripture. What I'm describing is biblical, and we can take that slide off the screen. 
And I don't know that you can find anything more central to the story of Jesus, the gospel that we proclaim, than when he makes his way to the cross and in his deepest suffering, Jesus hanging there on the cross and the darkness brooding around him. Do you know what he does? He sings. Now, you may not have thought of it like that. But he, he sings Psalm 22. He sings a song of lament. My God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me? He sings that song. He doesn't write the song in the moment. He doesn't come up with these words on his own. He takes them from their own hymn book. The song of lament, Psalm 22, that, that he himself has learned to sing in church. And he sings it in that moment. My God, why? He asked the question three ways. If you're we're listening closely or you're following along in Psalm 22, he says, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far? You hear the distance? Why are you so far from saving me? Forsaken? So distant to save, why are you so far distant from my anguish? This is what Jesus sings. Forsaken, so far from me to save, so far from my anguish. He says, my transliteration, I'm crying out to you, God. Can you see me here? My enemies mock me. Can you see me here? You're nowhere to be found in the most intense and pivotal moment of my life, in the most intense and pivotal and dark moment of history. I look up to you and you're nowhere to be found. You, God, are absent. You are silent. You abandoned me. God, you've bailed on me when I needed you most. Why? Now, for all our attention to the story of Jesus' crucifixion and familiarity with these words that Jesus speaks on the cross, I don't know that we've ever let that fully rest on us, that Jesus in that moment sings like this. I'm telling you, it's not in a major key. It's in a minor key. We sing the song. You know the one? How deep the Father's love for us. You know that one? His love goes measure. But do you know the, the, the line that comes a little bit later? It goes like this. How great the pain of searing loss. And then the Father 
turns his face away. You feel that? The father turns his face away. This is the song that Jesus sings, and it's dark, and it's in a minor chord. It's at the apex of the gospel story. It is lament. And at the heart of lament is not so much the experience of suffering, although it is the experience of suffering and brokenness and heartache that is the context of lament. It's not so much the experience of suffering or pain or loss or injustice, but it's that God seems to be so absent in the midst of it, right? It's not that suffering and struggle comes to us, but it's that why would we experience the absence of God in the midst of it? I mentioned my son-in-law, Darius, who was uh, here last month. He is an ICU nurse, critical care ICU nurse. Um, he works mostly overnight through the long, dark nights in ICU. Do you know what that's been like for the last year and a half? They moved uh, to Bernie uh, this summer. Before that, they lived uh, right in the middle center of downtown Dallas. And he worked in ICU in the midst of a pandemic. He says, do you know what it's like to be an ICU nurse in the midst of a pandemic, in the middle of the night? Do you know what it's like to be, you know, they didn't teach you this in nursing school to have the iPad with FaceTime so that the person with their dying breaths can see their family on the screen because they can't be present. It's the experience of isolation. It's the experience of absence. It's the disconnect of, of human uh, interaction, and, and it is this that is what is so acute about lament. Not that we suffer, but that God seems so absent in the midst of it. Look, Jesus withdraws to the region of Tyre and Sidon, Matthew writes. There's a Canaanite woman from that vicinity who came, and she throws herself at the feet of Jesus. And she says to him, she cries out to him, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter, it's my daughter. She's demon-possessed, and she's suffering terribly. What parent wouldn't go to any length when your child suffers? Matthew says that when Jesus is in the region of Tyre and Sidon, this mother comes, and she throws herself at the feet of Jesus, and she cries out, pleading with him. And then the next thing Matthew writes in this story, the next line, Jesus did not answer a word. Almost inconceivable. Silent. Nothing. They get into the boat to cross to the other side, Jesus and his disciples. Matthew tells us a furious storm comes up suddenly, and the waves begin to crash over the side of the boat, and they were certain that they were going to die. And where does Matthew tell us Jesus is? He's asleep. Silent. 
in that moment? Nothing. As a boy, Elie Wiesel was deported to Auschwitz and later Buchenwald, the concentration camps, with his father and countless other Jews. As a survivor, Wiesel would write of the Holocaust in his book, Night. He writes, watching a child die slowly by hanging behind me, I heard the man asking, for God's sake, where is God? And from within me, I heard a voice answer, where is he? This is where, hanging here from the gallows, silent. Nothing. She's a former student of mine, now in her mid to late 20s. She started having severe headaches. She went to the doctor. When they were finally uh, able to diagnose what was happening with her, they found a tumor at the base of her neck. When they ran the test on the tumor, they found that it was not metastatic, so it was not going to metastasize and spread, but that the tumor she had was rare, inoperable, tangled up in the nerves. It was terminal, is terminal. The worst of it though, she says, as she walked that journey from first having these headaches to that diagnosis, she says, every prayer I prayed, everyone, God did not answer. Silent. Nothing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Why are you so far from my anguish? This is Psalm 22. This is lament. This is the church singing in a minor key. It gives us language. You may be thinking, why? And why is this guy's preaching so dark? <laughs> because it's a part of your experience and mine, if we're honest, and it's a part of the story of the people of God, and it's all throughout Scripture, and it's at the center of the story of Jesus. That's why. It gives us language. Lament gives us language to express faith in the absence of God at least in our experience of the absence of God. I'm aware that Jesus said, my, my spirit I give you, my spirit I leave with you, I will never leave you or forsake you. Right? Some of you are thinking, I remember Jesus said that. <laughs> uh, we know that God has promised us, as high as the heavens, the deepest parts, from as far as the east is from the west, so far is my love for you, right? That God's love is pervasive and ever-present. But I'm telling you, the honest truth is, and the honest experience of Jesus on the cross and of all of us who seek to make our way in this world is that there are moments when the experience is that God has gone dark. It, it gives us, these psalms of lament give, gives us language to grasp for meaning and, and to reach toward God even when we want to accuse him of being absent. This is lament. 
And I want you to know that it is faith. It is not faithless to say, God, you've bailed on me, and I'm not sure about any of this anymore. See, because here's the trick. There is this kind of popular mythology that if you express that kind of pain and ask that kind of question, that you must not have faith. That to lament means the absence of faith. Not true. I'm here to say, not true. That if you doubt, if life crashes down on you, and though you've been taught to believe, and you want to believe, but you just can't believe in the moment, that somehow you don't have faith enough. Not true. Lament would say to us. The act of singing lament of praying, of talking to God in this way, is taking up Scripture itself, hurling it back at God in ways that I'm telling you God is big enough to take. It is an act, not of faithlessness, but it is an act of faith to lament. When in the experience of suffering or pain or loss or brokenness or injustice, Christians gloss over that experience with platitudes that take pieces of Scripture and sort of papier-mâché them over the experience. Things like, don't worry, God is in control. Right? We believe that's true, that God is in control, but in that moment... What is that? It, what, it, it minimizes the experience of the absence of God. So let me unpack that a little more. When we say things like to someone who sits with their heart broken over, uh, broken open, and, and their life just sort of shattered into about a million pieces, and they can't find a way forward, and they can't see God in that moment, and we say... Don't worry. We know that God works all things to good. He must, this is his purpose for you. When we gloss over lament with platitudes like that, we do not bear witness to the story of Jesus. And the world finds our profession, our faith, our religion a sham. But if you don't think that's right, Pay attention to what's going on. But if we are to bear witness to the story of Jesus and the power of the gospel and the power of the resurrection, we will meet Jesus and we will meet, find ourselves and meet the world at points of despair and his words will become our words. My God, my God, why? And Christians are not burdened in that moment with having to say, well, let me tell you why. Let me answer all your questions. Let me tell you, it's, it's okay. It, this is really just a, a phase you're going through. It's not reality. No. We come alongside Jesus and take up those same words, how long, oh God, 
until you come to save and redeem. How long? We bear witness to the gospel when we lament. If the church is to sing its song, we've got to make room for lament. Which has a kind of honesty and authenticity and rawness and realness that resonates not only truly with our experience, but with a world that craves for someone to come and sit with them in their pain. We've got to learn to sing in a minor key, too. St. John of the Cross, he's a 16th century mystic, or he was a 16th century mystic. He described the experience in which the joys and comforts of spirituality are taken away. And we experience a kind of despair that is like darkness. He called it the dark night of the soul. St. John of the Cross is most known for his writing, The Dark Night of the Soul. But here's the thing. John believed that having been given the words and the space to cry into the absence of God, Truly, authentically, lament the dark night of the soul will draw us back through the darkness to discover something richer and deeper that cannot be known any other way. That the suffering and the death of Jesus on the cross always precedes the resurrection, not the other other, other way around. And that in the story, there's a three-day delay, which you can take literally, Or you can take figuratively, there's this space where God is absent and it's dark before resurrection comes. You can't do it the other way around, church. So there is hope, but it's hope that comes through the dark night. And it's what we bring to the table. You know, one of the things I've loved about being here is that We gather in the name of Jesus and we offer our praise in our prayer and we hear scripture and the word of God comes to us and that word that goes before us leads us to the table. You know, it doesn't happen that way everywhere. It's usually in most churches of Christ I've been in the other way around. I think you've got it really uh, well. The word of God invites us, draws us to the table. So I want to say this, even as the one who was chosen for today comes to lead us in communion. What we bring to the table are not lives all put together in an experience of life that's all in a major key, bright and whole and good. We bring it all. And you know what? We experience, here's the thing about being in Christian community and being in the family of God. We all are at different places. Some of you came in this morning, and man, you were pounding that melody out in your life in a major key, and it was up-tempo, and that is good. Praise be to God. Amen? But there are others of you, let's just say, we're making room today because there are others of us who came in, and the melody that we were singing that marks our days, sometimes persistently, 
is not in a major key, it's in a minor key. And we're not sure we can even find the words to accuse God. And it's only by God's grace that you find your way here. Or maybe you would have rather, you would rather not be here. There's room at the table for that. And when we come to the table, we are not just remembering that Jesus suffered and died for us for the forgiveness of our sins, and we're remembering that story. We are not only remembering it, we are joining him in that journey. We are finding our own broken lives alongside his to commune with God and each other. We bring a faith that is fragile, a faith that is laced with uncertainty and doubt. And you know what I want to say to you? That's okay. Because God loves you in your doubt. And in your experience of his absence, he loves you still. And the people in this room in whom the Spirit of God dwells, if you are in that place where you're not sure if you believe any of this, even though you've been hanging out around it for a long time, you know what? We love you too. And there's room for you at this table. I want to offer these words that I've come across and found helpful to gather at the table. And then we'll take just a moment as we commune together. I want you to know that the table is ready. And there's not one here. Over there, and over there. So I, I misspoke, they're over there. But I want you to imagine, as was the case originally, that you've gathered around a table, that there's a warm table of welcome, and that maybe you've stumbled into the room almost late, but someone looks up and their eyes light up because they see you coming to the table. And they scooch over and pull up an extra chair for you, and they say, oh, there's here, sit here. And you may not be sure that you want to sit there or that you even want to be at the table, but they've drawn you in there. I want to say to you, the table is ready. And it is the table of company with Jesus and all who love him. It's the table of sharing with the poor and broken of the world with whom Jesus identified himself. It's the table of communion with the earth, even the earth, in which Christ became incarnate. So come to this table. Listen now. So come to this table. You who have much faith, and you who would like to have more. You who have been here often, and you who have not been here for a long time, you who have tried to follow Jesus, and you who have failed, come. It is Christ who invites us to meet him here. Thanks be to God.